We are LP Magazine, and since 2001, we've been the leader in providing content and education for the loss prevention and asset protection industry, and we are known as the voice and authority of the LP community. Each episode, we'll be sharing and discussing the latest in trends and current issues related to all things retail and profit protection. You're listening to the LPM Podcast. Well, hello, everyone. This is Stephanie Hoover with LP Magazine, back again with another episode, exciting episode of Inside Scoop with a Fraudster. I'm here with Alexander Hall, our illustrious guest. And Alex, I'm so excited to talk to you again. You always, you're always just like straightforward with all the inside scoop, and I love it. So this will be another great conversation. Um, we've gone Thank over you. your I background. <laughs> and Alex is joining us from ISC West today, which is great. Um, and you're there in the role of, um, your new gig at approved, right? No, actually I'm here, uh, still independently. Um, I'm only popping in for a few meetings and to catch up with old friends. Um, yeah, just independent, just (laughs) hanging out with some friends. All right. Awesome. Well, as you all know, Alex, um, did lead a former life of some, you know, maybe some criminal ways and has uh, reformed himself and is on the the good guy side now. And we've had some great conversations. We talked about um, self-checkout fraud. We talked about, uh, last time we talked about check fraud. And this episode, we'll be delving into identity theft and credit card fraud. But before I jump into that, I just had to share with Alex that since our last conversation about check fraud, which I didn't even know that that was still really a big thing out there, um, my own company got hit by check fraud. We had a check stolen um, out of a mailbox that was sent to a, one of our vendors. So that was pretty disappointing. Um, it was clearly, you know, the signature was bad. Like I, it was amazing that that thing got cashed um, and we're investigating it, but it just goes to show that the things that we're talking about are still alive and well out there <laughs> as this check fraud. So with that said, though, I wanted to jump in our, to our conversation today, which I, I think is fascinating. I'm, I'm super interested in this identity theft piece. So we're going to talk about credit cards and we'll talk about, you know, ways that people can do fraud through in-house financing and things like that. But maybe Alex, just walk us through sort of like, a, and I like to start with the basics, right? Like what's an entry level way that a fraudster would get involved in this type of, uh, of fraud? Well, the entry-level version, uh, as with many linear methods, I call, I made a new category for them, I call it linear, is get information and go type it in somewhere. So whether you're dealing with credit cards or ACH or you're dealing with identity information or profile information, as the fraudsters call it, the idea is to get a hold of comp- a set of compromised information and run over to either a credit application or a bank account application or a loan application or a checkout form and type in the compromised information. It's a linear form, and that's definitely the entry-level beginner's uh, beginner's playground there. So where would I type that in at? If I'm if I'm a beginner, do I even know where to go to type that in? Well, that's the thing. Uh, typically, we're all familiar with what it takes to open a bank account online. We're all familiar with what it takes to click on an ad in order to be driven to a credit card application. Um, it's it's been streamlined since since I was doing it, uh, even more so, and it was easy back then. And so getting to those forms and typing in the compromised information is just very, <laughs> yes, it's very easy to do, right? 
as far as getting a hold of it goes, as we're all familiar with the dark net, um, there's different ways to access it through all of the forums. And now, not not new, but we are definitely tracking in Telegram and social media platforms and things like that, where um, the forums from the dark side have kind of spilled over onto the surface web and are being leveraged there as well. So basically, if I'm a, a newbie to this, if I can get any, what I think is actionable information from someone, I would just go and try and fill out a form and see if it works. Would that be an easy way yeah. to do it? Yeah. And you just introduced a, a good a good idea for all of this is one thing that we tend to forget about is, is fraudsters are tracking how easy or how difficult, what verifications, how, how easy or how hard it is to, to meet the requirements of the system. So for example, if you think about Credit Fairness Act and you think about the, um, what is it called? Low credit credit cards, right? For people with less than perfect credit and all of those, it's expected that those forms will be easier to breach with less qualified profile information or even empty credit profiles. So when you start to, to build a list like this, you start to, to remember, okay, well, this card required no information and I was able to put through someone that has a 400 credit score. This one wouldn't let me do it. They required a, an 800 with a mortgage and a, and a, and a really thick credit profile. Um, by, by listing out the level of difficulties across different platforms, cards, and accounts, uh, the fraudster then gets to sift through the profiles that they acquire and know where to put them. They're like pieces to a puzzle. I know this one will fit with that one and this one will fit with that one. So besides you know, a, a robust credit history um, and a good credit score, what would be some of the other, um, you're talking about you know, layers of things they have to go through in order to get, get this approved. What, is there something else besides credit score that makes a, a credit card or a credit program an easier target? The credit score, in my experience, and, and I'm sure some people that are professionals in the credit industry can correct me, but in my experience, it accounts for the majority of your credit worthiness. Um, however, there are other historical elements that come into play. Yeah. Okay. Like what? <laughs> I'm not letting you have the so, <laughs> Sorry. So like time at an address, time with a service provider, okay. um, time with uh, utilities, time, you know, just time and and um, reliability associated to different data points. So like your address, your phone number, your utility bills, whether or not you've had liens or, or any of that stuff that doesn't directly contribute to the credit profile, but is looked at as well. Yeah. So, and I think you and I had talked about this earlier. Um, why, why waste time with someone with, so you've stolen a, an identity. Why waste time with somebody who has a poor credit score? Or are you just finding that out as you're going? So this is very interesting. So um, as we said, the beginner level is to take the information and go type it in as it is. Mm -hmm. My methods expanded on that tremendously. Um, I would sift through and I would find exactly the way you said, I would sift through and I would find high credit worthiness and I'd put them in one pile, low credit worthiness and put them in another. And in order to make this determination, I would go through like social media, I would search on different data aggregation sites, background check websites, things like this, things that I had access to, to kind of get a picture of how valuable this person might be, what kind of car they drive, what kind of neighborhood they live in, um, how they dress, what kind of things they're doing, did they just go on vacations, you know, all these different things. Okay. And then I separate them into two stacks. So specifically your question uh, about how valuable a identity profile can be that has a thin credit profile associated to it. 
Um, those are used for funneling, funneling funds. I would use those to create new accounts, to create new fintech accounts, to create new bank accounts, to create new uh, fin uh, secured cards, things like this, in order to get money that I had somewhere associated with a name other than myself. So they serve a different purpose. If the only purpose is to get a high credit line, uh, you of course need to go to the ones that have a, a, a thick credit profile. Um, but these ones definitely serve a purpose on the other side. Is the thinking that, um... So someone with maybe a low credit score or like, as you said, a, a thin uh, credit history, less likely to notice or to find out that they're, they've been compromised. Is that kind of the thinking why you would use them to funnel funds? I think that's safe to say. Um, another thing that is safe to say is historically, when, when a fraudster is going through the process that I created, um, it was shocking how little people tracked their credit. The one, the one thing, the first thing I tell to everybody, whether you have good or bad credit, track it, monitor it. You do not want someone creating an account under your name and then funneling stolen funds through it. So I remember a, a couple of years ago, I actually pulled all of my credit reports. I mean, and it was like, you know, big stack. Um, is there a specific company that you, or companies that you're not, that you're a spokesman or anything like that, but um, ways that the average Joe could monitor their credit? Um, so I'm not a spokesperson for these platforms, but I do use them myself. Um, Credit Karma, I think it's Equifax and Mint for tracking performance of my bank accounts for any transactions over or under X amount or geographically. Uh, yeah, yeah, I use those three. And I think there's another couple of them. The difference is some of them will update like by the second. I'll put in a credit card application because I'm trying to rebuild my credit after my crazy life. Um, so in building my credit, I'll, I'm applying for credit cards and I immediately get access through one of the platforms. They immediately notify me. It's like within seconds of hitting send. And then another one tracks uh, performance across more accounts. So it's valuable in a different way. And they're all free. And um, for the ones that aren't free, there's enough breach leverage to, to, to give you a free account for X amount of years. Uh, if, if you recall with all these breaches, every yeah. single one is offering X amount of years over time, so. Wow, okay, well, that's good to know. So I always like to think about this from you know our audience's perspective, right? Let's say I'm an investigator. Um, what, what are some, you know, simple, like sort of out of the box tools that you could recommend or maybe just things that they can be doing to at their you know, corporate level be watching for this type of fraud? Is it, is it mostly software now that's detecting this? It can be. Um, when it comes to a, so the prescriptions or the, the suggestions that I make to individuals is, is different than it would be for a company, of course. But sticking to the company uh, framework, the truth is there are more than enough automated vendors out there to, to meet the need, right? The problem that I see happening is um, marketing and sales pitches and bottles of wine get the service provider in the door not necessarily merit. And the, to be honest, the service provider might be amazing at what they do. It just might not be the best fit for the merchant or, um, or the person, the operator that's subscribing to the service. Mm -hmm. um, so what I suggest you do is identify every touch point across your customer journey wherein you are transacting with submitted identity information. At each and every one of those touch points, uh, the operator, whether it's a merchant, a retailer, or a bank, um, 
should have the opportunity to see some historical performance data one way or another, whether it's secondary verified uh, through like back, black box processing, like uh, my friends over in Identic, or if it is the PII, KYC aggregation services. I don't know if I'm using the right terms. I don't want to offend anybody, but the people who actually give you access to all the merchant uh, performance relative to the data set that was submitted. One way or another, you need to have eyes on every transaction wherein someone has the ability to submit identity information and get your and influence the back end operation of your company. Lots of words, but it's very important. Once you have that under control, the um, the process of identity of the process of identifying identity theft should be relatively simple to identify. At the end of the whole entire process, um, you'll begin to see a particular timestamp across time where new information was being um, associated with the profile. So you'll see a new email, you'll see a new address, you'll see a new phone number, you see a new bank account, you'll see new accounts popping up after a particular date where the old data points are still active and running, right? So like when we change our email address, we typically shift everything to the new email address. When we change the phone number, we typically shift over to the new phone number. When we're thinking about the whole general public, that's how it works. You move to a new address, you stop using the old one. A fraudster will associate new data points while the old data points are still running. So you have this duality of data sets running. It should be, it should be relatively simple to identify. Yeah, I mean, I can't even think of a situation, you know, my own personal accounts where I could even have two emails associated with that account. I didn't even yeah. know that was possible. So there are still companies out there that allow that? I hope not. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up a good point when, you know, you're looking at, you know, service providers, whatever it is, you know, somebody to help you with your credit card fraud. Um, it is hard to identify. You talk about, you know, the bottles of wine and whatnot. Um, and that's sort of like the other side of the, the, the industry that's out there. And you hope that you're working with a provider that can give you everything you need. But I think you're, you're going down a good path there of, you know, what are the things that they should be looking for? And it is, can they talk about every single data point or entry point that ca could cause fraud? Or are you getting like a, just a song and dance? Like that you should be like, you're, if you know you're working with somebody who's gonna be good at this, they should be able to dig into the details. Am I interpreting that the right way? Absolutely right. Uh, the three elements, when I work with a client to create a fraud prevention strategy, I consider every single touch point that they might have with the general public. On the other side of that, we need to identify what the transactions look like. And then only then can we prescribe uh, vendors that might fit the bill. The important thing to take away from this process is the strategy should dictate the automation. The automation should not dictate the strategy right? You have to look at your own operation with a holistic end-to-end, -end, you know, point of view and, and make decisions um, regarding each. And then you can find vendors that are viable at every single touch point. You can find vendors that can do escalation for every single touch point. You can have strong KYC up front, chargeback representments on the back, and then support behavioral analytics through your e-commerce platform with just three vendors. But if you look at it truly holistically, mm -hmm. you can create that. But if you're in the mix and you say, oh my goodness, we're getting attacked by ATOs, let me go Google ATOs and I find a vendor who says they're good at ATOs, now let's plug them in here. And then let's plug another one in for account creation. Let's plug another one in for 
chargeback abuse. Let's plug another one in. It's timely, it's costly, it's expensive, and you get locked into contracts where you you have to run it for a long time. So it's just it's just the better path to to step back and look at your whole operation first before pursuing automation. Right. So for sure, get educated on your own processes, right? So you should know that before even having it at your first meeting, right? Understand what your vulnerabilities are. Um, and if not, maybe hire a consultant who can help you understand what your vulnerabilities are. Oh, <laughs> that was not a plug. Well, thank you. <laughs> it was just a natural, you know, <laughs> happened. Um, but yeah, I, I think if you break it down into you know bite-sized chunks, it is a little bit easier to understand and to wrap your head around. Um, but like you just said, it, it can be very costly once you start to pile all these vendors on top of it, uh, when there probably is you know maybe one or two that could solve your problem for you. So absolutely, yeah, we're at about twenty minutes. Um, anything else that you wanted to say about identity theft or in-house financing fraud? So I think it would be valuable to walk through what my process was, so that your audience can dissect it and see if there's evidence of it uh, within their operations at any of these these points. Would you like yeah. me to do that? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay, so there's a four-step process. It's uh, obtain the information, and then it's manipulate the information, then it is inject the credit profile, and then it is hijack the credit profile. Those are the four steps. Mm -hmm. The first step, obtaining it, <clears throat> there's, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you can get it from the dark net, the dark web, whatever, and now spilling over to the surface web. But what I found were the most reliable mm, sources of identity information were three places, in-store financing for furniture, um, elective service doctor's offices, like, uh, you know, plastic surgery and, and you know, those types of things. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third one was leasing offices, high-end leasing offices. And through different channels, people have gone as far as driving trucks through front doors in order to grab a file cabinet and go park it in a garage for it to be torn apart and, and looked at. Mm -hmm. So that's the first step, obtaining information. Now, the reason why those three data sources were so valuable is because that information is what I call organic. If you get someone in Taiwan who scanned a whole bunch of vacationers information or skimmed a bunch of their card information and they upload it to 20 different forums, it doesn't make sense to trust a thief, right? In, in, in that, that disconnected capacity. For me, it was getting organic material. So that was one, get organic material. Two was to begin to manipulate the information. So as I mentioned before, we sift through it. We, we quickly look at social media profiles and we find out these ones are worth a lot. These ones are not worth much. And, um, Right. So at that point, we take the ones that are worth a lot and we start to build them up. There's two levels. Um, the easiest level is to start to associate new phone numbers, new emails, new social media profiles, new addresses, things like this. And you can achieve that by signing up with scam or spam email newsletters. You can sign up for Facebook and Gmail and all of these different things. Fraudsters, at least back in, back in my day, um, I was aware that we were aggregating data on the back end to verify based on historical performance. So if I knew I could create new accounts, I knew they'd be funneled somewhere and seen as reliable over time. Mm -hmm. So once the superficial information has been manipulated to reflect data that I want represented there, next is to build the profile up well enough to get access to the credit report so the fraudster can actually see the credit profile. Mm -hmm. Oops. In order to do that, um, you would establish by leveraging the newly established address, email address, phone number, so on, 
um, you would start to establish secured cards or new bank accounts or new fintech accounts or whatever it may be, you start to establish those new accounts, low level ones. And then you, you also would, would uh, create telecom provider. Uh, you would see which telecom provider they use and you'd go to another vendor or another provider in order to establish a new account. Over the span of 60 days, now we're starting to see information that we want represented on the credit profile. At that point, we control it but we don't have absolute control. So how do you absolutely control a credit profile? You freeze it on behalf of the identity holder. So now, if ever the real identity holder goes to access their own credit profile, they look like the intruder. I've never had it taken away from me when I, whenever I had done it. Um, wow. Yeah. So that's the whole process. That last part's the scariest. Uh, <laughs> so just backing up to the obtain piece. What's mm -hmm. the minimum amount of like, I'm, you need social, like what else would you need to start this? Name, address? Um, name, social, address, phone number. Um, typically from those three data sources, you would get bank account information, check scans, credit card scans. Um, yeah, you, you'd, get a lot of, you'd get a lot of information, but the bare minimum would be a social security, date of birth, phone number. Um, name, sorry. Yeah. Everything else is searchable, Googleable, and then with the, um, I know SSNDOB has had its ups and downs for being available over time, but that was a reliable resource as well. Okay. Truly frightening stuff. Um, I, I've learned a lot over these last conversations, um, maybe too much. <laughs> But I, I'm hoping our audience has, has enjoyed this as well. I know we've gotten a lot of feedback when we've been out traveling and things like that. So um, again, if anyone has any questions for Alex, please submit. Um, we'll talk about our, our next episode and um, that should be out soon. But uh, thank you again, Alex, for all your time. Really appreciate all your insights and have fun at ISC West. Thank you, Stephanie. Have a great one, everybody.